I invite you to turn with me one last time to the book of Judges, chapter 21, page 283, if you are using one of our pew Bibles. We have finally come to the end of the epilogue here in Judges chapter 1 that's kind of stretched over these last three chapters. And subsequently, we've also come to the end of the book. 24 sermons later, almost eight months, and we're finally going to conclude our study of this fascinating and yet tragic narrative. I must say I was genuinely sad last year when we, after two years, finished the Gospel of John. It was like, you know, saying goodbye to a long-lost friend, but I'm not sure I feel quite the same way about Judges. This has been brutal at times. It's been graphic. It's been difficult. And yet, I trust that in God's providence, you have been as edified through it as I have been as it is the very Word of God. Remember the last three chapters here, two weeks ago, we saw the brutal rape and uh, uh, murder of the Levite's concubine, and this sparked a civil war in Israel. The nation lashed out against the tribe of Benjamin in retaliation. Last week then we saw that Benjamin was almost entirely destroyed. And so today, really, we're coming to the final fallout of these events here in chapter 21. Let's remember, this is God's Word and His providence. He has ordained this section of Scripture for us today, for our good. Let us then receive it with faith as the Word of God. Judges chapter 21, the entire chapter. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, No no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up to the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wise for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is here there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. And when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the, the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every human that has, every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and proclaimed peace to them. 
And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wise for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes from, up from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Lebona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards, and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty." And the people of Israel did so, and took their wives according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Amen. This is God's word. Let's bow and ask the Lord again for the blessing to be upon the preaching of it. Father, we do pray for your spirit to be poured out as we study and meditate upon your truth. We pray that you would help us see our sin, to see our Savior, to discern the great plan of salvation, that you are working among your people for your glory. We pray that you would help us to see this, to embrace this, For the glory of your name, we ask this in Christ our Lord. Amen. I feel like the end of Judges is kind of like one of those movies with a fairly detailed and confusing plot that right at the greatest point of tension, suddenly you get a black screen and the credits start rolling. And you're like, what just happened? What kind of ending is this? Okay, I understand a few things here, but what's the point? How do things really end up in the end? That's kind of what we're left with as we come to the conclusion of this chapter, specifically the conclusion of this book. What just happened? Of course, as we consider the last few chapters, we've seen that you know Israel has hit rock bottom. It's like watching a train that is, is crashing in slow motion. The leadership in Israel has hit rock bottom. There's lawlessness, there's slaughter, there's religious and moral chaos, there's civil war. Israel is dismembering itself into oblivion as one mistake has led to another mistake, which led to another mistake. And even their attempts to fix their mistakes, even their attempts to do what is right is marred by sin. And really, we're we're left with this question, what's going to happen 
What's going to break this cycle of self-destruction? Something has got to change, otherwise they're going to lose everything. They're going to kill themselves. They're going to devour themselves. We're left with that question that what Israel has clearly is not enough. They have the law, they have the promises, they have the revelation of God, they have the worship of God, but it's not enough. Something must change. For things can't go on like this. And yet, even with these questions burning in our mind, we get this anticlimactic ending where the most important questions in our mind are just left unanswered. Apart from this last verse where, you know, we get a kind of uh, one sentence kind of commentary um, on what's going on. This, this really isn't new to us. It's been said several times already before. But besides this last verse, we get zero divine commentary on what's going on here. We're not told whether Israel does what is right or what is wrong. We're not told whether God is pleased with them or God is angry with them. We're not told whether their actions end up for the good of the nation in the long run or the ill of the nation in the long run. The story just ends. The curtain drops. No solution is given. It's just a nuclear bomb goes off in the heartland of Israel. And then the story's over. And the credits roll. What are we to make of all this? How can we make sense of not only what's going on in this chapter, but what's going on in this book? Well, today I want to submit to you that it's really in what is not said. It tells us everything we need to know about what's going on at the end of this story. I'm going to submit to you that, that what speaks loudest in the conclusion of this book is nothing less than the sound of silence. The deafening silence of God in the face of Israel's self-dismemberment. The book opens, remember, with God speaking, with God directing, with God leading. And so now, in the end, his silence makes it clear the nation is under judgment. God has, in many respects, turned his back upon Israel because of their many sins. And this just leaves everything hanging in the balance yearning and longing for something more, something else to come and fix the problem. And yet we also see, even in this silence, even in this judgment, we can see God's mysterious hand of providence at work. And we can see the mercy and the compassion of God at work as well. Israel does almost destroy themselves. There seems to be no end in sight. They were under the judgment of God, and yet in the end, they're not consumed. They survive amazingly against all odds because God refuses to fade away even when they push Him away. And that, in, the, in light of this discouraging end of this book, that is what gives us hope. And that is what can serve as we walk away from this story to teach us that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
And that God, at this point in history, is not done raising up deliverers for His people. He will again show mercy to Israel. And to you and me as well. So that's my hope for you today that I want to open up for you today as we break down this passage. And as we look at it, there's three kind of episodes to this story. And so I've got three points for you once again. This entire section is dealing with the sin and the fallout of Israel doing what is right in their own eyes. Again, it's a slow motion train wreck, right? We're watching. Israel's doing things according to their own self-will, and it's just leading to disaster again and again and again, snowballing upon them. So, in this sense, I want to point out three results of what happens when we do what is right in our own eyes. I feel like, in many respects, I've preached this sermon 24 times already, right? I know, I get it, okay? This is sin, this is what it does, but... That's what we have here again today as well. Three results of what, we, of what happens when we do what is right in our own eyes. The first thing we see is this. We blame God for our mistakes. When we do what is right in our own eyes, inevitably, we end up blaming God for our own mistakes. In verse 1 through 4, a new conflict in this episode arises. The last chapter ended with almost a complete annihilation of the tribe of Benjamin. Israel went to war against the tribe. They killed 25, over 25,000 soldiers. And then they went city to city to city and killed everybody in the tribe of Benjamin, save for 600 soldiers who escaped to the stronghold, the Rock of Ramon. Men, women, children, even the animals wiped out. It was a slaughter. And as I said last week, this was a heinous act of sin on Israel's uh, part. And their lust for revenge, they went way beyond what God certainly commanded or approved of. They went way beyond because they enacted holy war upon their own people. That which Israel wouldn't even do to their worst enemies, even when God commanded them, they brought upon their own people. They slaughter their own people, showing no mercy. So chapter 21 opens with a problem, but also with another aspect of this holy war that we weren't previously made aware of. Verse 1, we read that when Israel was preparing for war at Mizpah, they swore an oath that they would not give any of their daughters to the Benjaminites as wives in marriage. This was another aspect of holy war. Holy war sought the complete annihilation of a people. Genocide. That's one reason why God forbid Israel from intermarrying with the Canaanites. They were called to wage holy war on the Canaanites. And that involved, as the true enemies of God, not intermarrying with them. So that they would be cut off from the land. Of course, this sad aspect of this right away is that we know from the first 20 chapters, that Israel really had no problem intermarrying with the Canaanites. You know, they'd shown very few scruples against that. And yet, when it comes to their own brothers, they again treat their own countrymen, their own brothers, the own other people of God, worse than they do their own enemies. And they stick to their guns. 
We're not going to intermarry with the Benjaminites because we promised. Of course, just as we consider this, I mean, just the hypocrisy here, the self-righteousness, it's, it's astounding. Being casual about the commandments of God when they're difficult, but being zealous for the commandments of God when it's for our personal advantage. We all tend to do it at times. It's a heinous evil. We're to see in this sense. Benjamin's sin was great, but Israel's sin, I think, is even greater than that. Holy war on their own people, selectively applying God's commandments to, and so as to fit their needs. But in light of how suddenly Israel remembers this in verse 1, we see that this is a rash oath. It's kind of like Jephthah's oath that we saw in chapter 11. His rash oath led to the death, the curse and the death of his only daughter. And now Israel's rash oath is going to lead to curse and death as well. But the immediate problem of this rash oath is that there is no women left for the Benjaminites to marry. There's 600 of them left and nobody else. And if they don't get married, that generation's going to die off. It's going to kill off the tribe, essentially. They'll either die off or they'll have to marry the Canaanites. If they can marry the Canaanites, that too would essentially kill off the tribe genetically. And so Israel realizes this is a horrible fate for the nation. If we miss one tribe, if, if, if one tribe can't hold their uh, inheritance that God has given them, then the entire nation is in jeopardy. And they realize that they've painted themselves into a corner. They're scared of what that might mean. But notice how they respond. They respond in verse 2. They lift up their voices to the Lord and weep bitterly. They respond in verse 4. They rose early and built an altar and offered sacrifices to the Lord. I want you to notice, particularly though, that this is not the language of repentance, but of mourning. They're sorrowful over the consequences that their sin has brought. And that's what should stick out at us. There's no acknowledgement of their sin. There's no confession to the Lord that they went too far, that they handled things wrongly. They just realize, ooh, our, our future is really bleak, and it troubles them. But what's most amazing about this is what they say here in verse 3. And they said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Undoubtedly, with Yahweh being addressed formally as the God of Israel, the subtle implication here, the problem in Israel is ultimately his problem and his responsibility. Why has this happened, Lord? They're complaining. This is not an honest inquiry as in, why has this happened? As if we don't know why this has happened. They are accusing God. That's the, the gist of their tone there. They're, they're blaming God for what has happened as if it's all His fault. As if this is all some sort of accident that God should have prevented. This is like a drunk driver blaming his crimes on open bottles. 
They, t- they fail to take responsibility for their own sin. And they blame God for the consequences. Why have you let this happen? Brother, what you see, this is the natural progression. Uh, what happens when we do what is right in our own eyes? When self is king, we often blame God when things don't go our way. In our self-centered blindness, we often act like it's His fault for not stepping in and, and stopping the consequences of our actions. It's a natural progression of self-righteousness as well. I deserve better. It's so much easier to, to blame God than it is to take personal responsibility, isn't it? It's so much easier to, to blame God or circumstances instead of going into serious introspection to see where you have harbored evil in your heart, where you have followed the wisdom and dictates of your own heart and mind, where your choices in life have resulted in justly reaping what you sow. That's the deceptive nature of sin. It's always somebody else's fault. The deceptive nature of self-righteousness. Oh, you know, nobody's perfect, you know. Why has God brought this upon me? We get angry at God even when we get what we deserve. This is what Israel is doing here. They're, they're blaming God, but of course, how does God respond? They ask this question. They, they offer up sacrifices and, and, and sit all day. And what happens? He's, he's silent. He says nothing. He will not be used by them. They wanted to live according to what was right in their own eyes and thus in judgment. God gives them just that. You want to make your own decisions? You want to go your own way? You want to do your own thing? You want to be all that you want to be? God often says to the sinner, go right ahead. I will back off. I will give you what you want. And this is judgment in the worst kind. Judgment when God is not only absent, but He's silent. Israel now has been left to their own devices. They're going to have to figure things out on their own. And it's not going to end well. So this is how they act. And this is how God responds. And that brings us to the second phase of the narrative. Secondly, when we do what is right in our own eyes, not only do we blame God, but we punish others for our own sin. We punish others for our own sin. Verse 5-7, through Israel is concerned because Benjamin's about to be cut off. They have no wives. But then we learn of another oath all of a sudden. Another oath that they made in preparation for war. Not only did they vow not to give any of their daughters in marriage, but they also vowed whoever doesn't join us in this war would be put to death. Two rash oaths, which now have complicated things a bit. And so in light of this oath that they remember, they, say, uh, they ask among themselves in verse 8, Which one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And the author then 
aptly captures the nature of Israel's deliberating here by saying, And behold, no one had come up from the camp from Jabesh Gilead. Behold, Eureka, I found it. It's like Israel snaps their fingers and says, I got the solution to all of our problems. Conveniently, Jabesh Gilead did not show up. They didn't join us in the war. And so from that, an evil plan is hatched. Now we don't know exactly why, of course, that Jabesh Gilead didn't join in the fight. They were a long way from the battle um, across the Jordan, so maybe they didn't come because of the distance. Uh, maybe they acted prudently, you know, not overreacting to the, to the demands of the Levite. Uh, we don't really know. But for whatever the reason may be, there's no doubt that Israel's punishment of them here and this vow is way, way, way over the top. In verse 10 and 11, Israel sends 12,000 troops and they kill everybody. Every male and every married woman with the exception of 400 unmarried girls. Once again, Israel overreacts. Once again, they act with heinous and horrific evil. Once again, they bring holy war upon their own people. Just by way of contrast, back in chapter 5, when a few tribes didn't join Deborah and uh, Barak in, in war, uh, all they did was publicly rebuke them. Even Gideon then, a few chapters later, when Ephraim didn't join him in the fight, he punished them and taught them a lesson, but he didn't wage holy war upon them. Here, conveniently, Israel finds a way out by exploiting one foolish oath to make up for another one. And in the process, they commit a much greater sin. You know, even when we think about it, even in this, they're cheating. They vowed to put everyone to death. Um, if so, then why don't they kill the 400 virgins? That's selective justice. That's not honest oath-keeping. This is kangaroo court justice. This is moral corruption at the core, twisting things to meet their own ends. And the worst part about it is, once again waging holy war upon their own people. That which they wouldn't do in obedience to God to the Canaanites when it meets their needs. All of a sudden, they're zealous for it. Let's go. So it's with this stunning hypocrisy that Jabesh Gilead becomes the scapegoat. Just like the Levite threw out his concubine to save himself, Jabesh Gilead is sacrificed and ends up paying for Israel's sin. Now perhaps you know what I mean when I argued two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that the abuse of women leads to the abuse of everything. The abuse of women in Israel led to the abuse of everybody. Corruption at every level. Brethren, this is what happens when we live according to our own rules. We not only blame God, but we blame others as well. We make them the scapegoat. 
We blame others or we blame circumstances. This is all part of, of coming up with human solutions to what is ultimately a spiritual problem. Our greatest problems in life are not outside of us. They're not people. They're not our family. They're not our job. They're not our upbringing. They're not our circumstances in life. Our greatest problem, our greatest problems are inside of us. And the indwelling, never-ending war against sin. And if we don't acknowledge this, we're going to throw human, superficial solutions to spiritual problems. We're going to blame God when things don't go our way. We're going to take it out on others to fix our own mistakes. We must run to our Savior daily, saying, Thy will, not my will be done. Otherwise, things are always going to end up worse and worse and worse. It's like telling one lie and then having to tell 20 more bigger lies to make up for the one lie. We must run to the Lord. We must say, Thy will be done. We must recognize where our true problems lie and run to the only one who can do anything about it. Christ and the benefits that He gives us in the Gospel. But Israel here, blaming God, blaming others, is digging their own grave. No doubt about it. That brings us then to our third and climactic phase of this story. Third and finally, when we do what is right in our own eyes, we become what we hate. When we do what is right in our own eyes, we become what we hate. After the slaughter of Jabesh Gilead, in verse 13 and 14, Israel brings these 400 stolen virgins to the stronghold where the Benjaminites were hanging out. And this, in a sense, is extending an olive branch to them. They proclaim peace to them. They're not just ensuring that they'll have wives to, to ensure the generation will, uh, the tribe will not die off. Um, but re- giving of wives was a formal way of establishing peace in the ancient Near East. They're welcoming Benjamin back into the nation here. But noteworthy, it's interesting, this, this odd phrase in verse 15. The people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. This is a subtle reminder here. This is all of God's doing. God is sovereign in all of this. Perhaps, uh, most specifically, this is a reminder that the breach in Israel was because God was acting in judgment. Israel recognizes this in some respect. God is judging Israel. He's, he's judging and punishing Benjamin as well. But, but for our purposes, it's, it's important. You know, God's sovereignty does not mean that we're not responsible. It does not mean that we can then blame God as if, you know, we don't have to take responsibility for our sin and for our actions. The Bible holds these things in tension. We are to embrace both that God is absolutely sovereign and man is absolutely responsibility. And this is what this verse kind of reminds us here. This is God's judgment upon the nation in the big picture. And yet Israel is still responsible. 
Nevertheless, the reality is they have 400 virgins, and, but they're still 200 short. 200 more wives are needed. And so, what are they going to do now? They can't go back and break their oath. But suddenly, yet again, they have another eureka moment. Verse 19, they say, Behold, there's a yearly feast of the Lord coming up. Would you look at that? Boy, our luck. What we can do now is at this yearly feast have 200 men lie in ambush. And then when the daughters come out to dance, the men can jump out in ambush, grab a wife, and run to the hills. This way, think about it, this way we can give wives to Benjamin, wink, wink, but not really give wives to Benjamin, which would break our oath. Because if we let Benjamin steal wives, then we can't be guilty of giving them wives. You see the logic here? Once again, Israel's exploiting a loophole. They realize that there is a way that they can keep the letter of the law, even though they violate clearly the spirit of it. And again, this gives us insight into what's going on into the nation here. What's going on when, when, when they do what is right in their own eyes? You know, you know, when we think about that phrase, doing what is right in our own eyes, um, at times we may think that this is anarchy. This is moral relativism in every respect. And, but that's not always the case. And that's not the case here in Israel. Because you know what? Legalism is essentially the same thing. Legalism has the outward appearance of obedience. But in reality, it's a twisting of God's law. It's a twisting of justice. It's a twisting of what God has said to meet our own needs and in our own ways. Legalism adds to the law of God. It distorts the law of God, but all under the pretense of obedience to God's law. And that too is doing what is right in our own eyes. It's like when Jesus in uh, Mark 7 tells the the, the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees there, he says, you set aside the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Israel is circumventing their oath, giving lip service to it, while their hearts are far from God, far from honest obedience to it. And they act as if the mere appearance of godliness on the outside is sufficient in the eyes of God. We've got to understand whether it is anarchy or whether it's strict outward obedience to the law of God apart from inward heart obedience, both of those things are manifestation of lawlessness of manifestation, of doing what is right in our own eyes, they're both a manifestation of rank unbelief. Nevertheless, this plan is exactly what Benjamin does as this episode plays out. And as we wrap all of this up here, the irony of of everything is thick enough to cut with a knife. They they planned this scheme at one of the yearly feasts. The yearly feasts were prescribed in the law specifically to celebrate God's blessing Israel by giving them the land. And yet all of this 
They're trying to stave off losing their inheritance at this feast. The yearly feasts were to celebrate how God dispossessed the Canaanites and gave Israel the land, but really, in reality, it's Israel themselves that are being dispossessed because they are being further and further and further Canaanized. What should be a celebration of God's blessing to these women, at least, become a curse. They're carried off by hoodlums. Nothing less than rape. Just like Yephthah's daughter in chapter 11, remember? She came out celebrating and dancing at what was supposed to be a great victory in Israel, only to realize in horror that she must be sacrificed because of the foolish vow of her father. In the same way, these virgins come out dancing and celebrating at God's blessings, only then to serve as a scapegoat because of the foolish vow of men who should have been their protectors. And it's thus with all of this that the epilogue comes full circle. What started this all? The rape and murder of the Levite concubine. And now, in response, the murder of one leads to the murder of hundreds, if not thousands, of Jabesh Gilead. Now, the rape of one now leads to the rape of 200 daughters of Shiloh. Not to mention the 400 that were stolen from Jabesh Gilead. In conclusion, nothing but more abuse of women, more hypocrisy, more depravity, more doing what is right in their own eyes, more throwing human solutions at spiritual problems. Israel is furious at the rape and murder of the Levite's concubine, but in the end, they end up committing Rape and murder on a much greater scale. They become that which they hated. And that's the danger and the blindness of hypocrisy and self-righteousness and self-rule. You become a mirror image of that which you hate in others. And that's what's so blinding and dangerous about it because you're convinced that on the outside you're better than them. You're more righteous. You're doing things right, but inwardly you are no different. Inwardly you are worse. That's why sexual immorality and lust and hedonism have certainly slain their thousands, but self-righteousness has slain its tens of thousands of souls. There is no sin greater. There is no sin that puts us in greater danger to the judgment of God than pride, self-righteousness, and hypocrisy. Jesus said to prostitutes and the tax collectors, go and enter the kingdom of heaven before you do, you self-righteous Pharisees, outwardly keeping the law of God, but inwardly corrupt. This is the warning we ought to see here. Lest we too fall into the same sort of blind sin and hypocrisy. Well, in the end, Benjamin is saved. They steal their wives. They return quickly to their inheritance. They rebuild their cities. 
even as us readers were naturally horrified by the way by the way all this has played out the message is clear israel excuse me benjamin is israel in miniature they're lawless they're sinful they're almost cut off and they only survive with great difficulty and what happens with benjamin is a message to the nation it's going to happen to you as well, Israel, unless something changes. And that's when we get this one divine comment on what goes on here. In those days, there was no king in Israel, verse 25. Everyone did what is right in his own eyes. The author is saying a king is needed. A ruler of God's people to help prevent some of these atrocities. And in an immediate historical sense, this points us forward to 1 Samuel. And Saul, but not ultimately Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, but ultimately David from the tribe of Judah. And yet from our perspective, we know as we look back, really in Israel's history, a king, the king, the monarchy, really served no better. Even the best of kings could not fix Israel's problem. Something else, someone else is needed. And that's the hope that as we look back that we can find in this last episode. I mean, without a doubt, this is a real world example of human depravity. God has given us this book so that we see ourselves. That's the main gist of the message. We are depraved by nature. We must see this and turn to the Lord for help. We need somebody outside of us to come invade our lives and rescue us from ourselves. But notice as well, That's not the only message here, because notice how it ends. Even though God is silent in judgment, what happens? Israel survives. Benjamin survives. It's noteworthy that in this last chapter, several times, Israel is said to have compassion on the tribe of Benjamin. Compassion is a characteristic of God. All throughout the Old Testament, God is described as the compassionate God. Israel's behavior towards Benjamin, even as flawed as it is, typifies God's behavior towards Israel. As the one who, yes, chastens and judges and punishes His people, but nevertheless preserves His people. And in this way, it testifies to the faithfulness of Yahweh. And that, brethren, is our hope as well. We are Israel in miniature. We are utterly sinful. We are self-willed. We are are self-ruled. We're legalistic. We're self-righteous. We're hypocritical. Even in our tent to do right, we show partiality. Even in our tent, we uh, try to fix things we end up making things worse. And in the very same way of Israel, we have the law of God, we have the revelation of God, we have the worship of God. You believe in God. That's why you're here today. You believe in the worship of God. That's why you're gathered here today. You believe in the law of God. You try to do what He uh, has commanded us to do, but 
But this is not enough. Something more is needed. And that's what sets the stage for us to look to Jesus Christ, the ultimate ruler, the ultimate king, the ultimate Lord, the ultimate Israel. Instead of blaming God and blaming us, Jesus took our sins upon Himself and He paid the penalty for them at the cross in our place. Instead of murdering and cutting off others to fix the problems among the people of God, Jesus gave Himself to be murdered on that tree. And He bore the judgment of God in His body to fix the problem of our sin, the breach between us and God because of our sin. This, brethren, sets the stage for the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Gospel and that King that we so desperately need. God's law is not enough for us. We need somebody to obey it for us. The knowledge of God is not enough. You can't say, I believe in God. We need someone to seek us out and to create new life in choosing us by His grace and in working in us effectually true belief in repentance. Human solutions are not enough. We need someone to pay for our mistakes. The commands to persevere and walk in obedience are not enough. We need a Savior who will work perseverance in us, who will complete the work that He began in us, who will pour out His Spirit upon us and lead us in that path of godliness. The wisdom of God is not enough. We need a king to rule over us, to tell us what to do, to rule not just over us, but to rule within us, to write his law upon our hearts, to cause us to walk in his statues, to fill us with his spirit, leading us down the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. All of this, all of what we need is only supplied in Jesus Christ and the gospel and the promises of the new covenant. And this is our hope as we come to the end of this depressing and awful book. That God has shown mercy to Israel in preserving them. God has shown mercy to Benjamin in preserving them despite all of their horrific sins. And so you, sitting here today, if He showed mercy to them, will He not show mercy to you? No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, No matter how much you struggle day to day to even believe that God exists, if He will show mercy to Israel, will He not show mercy to you? Let us then see in this book the kindness and the severity of God. And let us run to that Savior that God is shouting through these pages of Judges that we need. And let us see how every one of our needs has been met perfectly in His person and in His work. And let us with joy embrace Him with faith, entrusting our souls to Him, looking to Him for guidance, leaning upon Him and resting upon Him, not just once, but every day as our King, as our Lord, as our Savior, as our brother, as our friend.
Amen. May God give us the grace to believe these things, to see our King as He rules over us for our good. Let's pray.